Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 20. Lacey is right. Verses 1 through 16 is what we're looking at this morning. Trading great for good. And I, I, again, thank you, Lacey. Thank you, Chelsea, uh, for last week and, and their testimonies of what D groups can be for us. I'm going to talk a little bit more about it as we uh, move through this passage. Trading great for good. That's what I believe this passage teaches us today. Uh, I came across a quote like literally last night, or it may have been wee early this morning as I was uh, working on this, by Tony Evans. It says, if you are living outside of God's purpose, you are living outside of God's power. And that just, it blew me away that here I was, I've told you before, my strategy in, in preparing, it's 10, 15 minutes of focused, 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 five minutes, 10 minutes of doing something else. It's just the way my brain works, uh, especially if the distraction's right there in front of me. If there are no distractions, I can, I can do it. But if distraction's there, it will distract me. But it, it keeps me going. It, it, it allows me to do something rather mindless while what I just focused on percolates a little bit, simmers. Percolate, for you young people, is how they used to make coffee. Okay, just, uh, y'all don't know what that is. But anyway, uh, and as I was spending the five minutes of distraction and scrolling through Facebook, boom, Tony Evans' post came up. And I thought, that's, that's where I am. It's where, where I'm looking. It's where Scripture is taking us. And then, this morning, I was uh, celebrating our win last night in football, and uh, I was reading some articles and looking at some quotes and that sort of thing, and uh, no other than the great theologian Joe Burrow, he's a better quarterback than theologian, he didn't mention God, but he did say this this morning, or, or last night in the press conference, he said one of the things he told the team after the game was, don't let good enough get in the way of greatness. And I thought, Lord, you got a message here somewhere? Are you, are you saying something? And I think, I think he is. Paul, right now, as, as I have, uh, I, I hope, proven to you or maybe let, given you some thoughts, Paul is outside of God's will right now. And he will be through chapter 27. He's outside of God's purpose, and therefore he now sees a distinct lack of, of God's power. It, things are not going to go for the next, oh, it's about three, maybe four, maybe longer years over these next seven chapters that Paul does little to nothing compared to what he did in Ephesus. The great was traded for good. And we see that in the life of Paul now in this passage, couple of different stories going on here in verses 1 through 16. Read those with me. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, uh, there's a, a copy in front of you in, in the, the back of the pew. Uh, honestly, if, if you don't own a Bible, take that one home. We'll get another one. 
you need that Bible uh, more than we do, we'll replace it and somebody else will get it. So uh, use that as yours this morning or take it home and make it yours forever. Uh, Acts 20 verses 1 through 16. After the uproar was over, this is the uproar of, of Demetrius and the silversmiths, Paul sent for the disciples, encouraged them, and after saying farewell, departed to go to Macedonia. And when he had passed through those areas and offered them many words of encouragement, he came to Greece and stayed for three months. The Jews plotted against him when he was about to set sail for Syria, and so he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derba, Timothy and Tychicus, uh, Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. I'm not going to read that again. These men went on ahead and waited for us in Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread. In five days we reached them at Troas, where we spent seven days. And if you're having trouble with all the places, turn to the back of your Bible to the maps. Verse 7, on the first day of the week we assembled to break bread. Paul spoke to them, and since he was about to depart the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the room upstairs where we were assembled, and a young man named Eutychus was sitting on a windowsill and sank into a deep sleep as Paul kept on talking. When he was overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was picked up dead. But Paul went down, bent over him, embraced him, and said, Don't be alarmed, because he's alive. After going upstairs, breaking the bread, and eating, Paul talked a long time until dawn. Then he left. They brought the boy home alive and were greatly comforted. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul on board because these were his instructions, since he himself was going by land. When he met us at Assos, he, we took him on board and went down to Mytilene. Sailing from there, the next day, we arrived off of Chios, the following day, we crossed over to Samos, and the day after, we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia because he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, for the day of Pentecost. That's a lot of travel itinerary. There are a lot of things going on here in this, really, mostly a, a travel log. I think we're going to see four things, though, uh, here, as, as, four trades that Paul has made unwittingly, I believe. I, I don't think he knows at this time that he's outside of God's will. I, I, the, the, the children of Israel, once they were told, you're going to wander in the wilderness, well, they got it. I don't think they knew it leading up to the point. I know in my personal life, we did not know we were in the wilderness in uh, the fall of 2004. We knew we were in the wilderness sometime around 2006, 2007, and fully understood it somewhere around 2011, 2012. We did not see the wilderness when we were there. We didn't see our wandering while it was happening, and I don't think Paul sees it either, but I think in retrospect, especially as Luke records it, remember, one of the things we're doing with Acts as we move through this, the narrative book, is we're seeing not just what Luke wrote, sometimes we're looking at what Luke didn't write, and we are looking at how he records one event versus another. We're looking at his narrative, because he wrote this as a story. Why does he leave some things out? Why does he not tell us some things that we would think would be automatic but aren't? We're going to talk about some of that as we move through it. 
four trades that Paul made in choosing this route, choosing Jerusalem over Rome. Remember, that is the problem. Chapter 19, verse 21, when he sets his face to Jerusalem, when he knows he must go to Rome. There's the split. There's the issue. The first trade that Paul made is he is stability was traded for wandering. Look at the verses. Verse 1, he departs to go to Macedonia. That's the first thing we read. Now, why is he leaving uh, Ephesus? Because of the riot, because of the, the uproar, because of all the problems there. He is hightailing it out of Ephesus. This verse has a, a very rapid pace to it. After the uproar was over, Paul sent for the disciples, encouraged them, and after saying farewell, departed to go to Macedonia. Get them together. Y'all do good. See ya. And he's gone. I mean, it, was, it seems like it was that quick after he has spent two years with this church, growing this church, loving this church, doing these miracles. He hightails it out of there. And then departed to go to Macedonia. And verse 2 says, when he had passed through those areas, that little phrase encompasses at least a year and a half maybe two years, that Luke writes nothing about, except saying that he offered them many words of encouragement. So he's left Macedonia. He won, I mean, rather, he, left, he leaves Ephesus. Look at your map. He goes north and travels through Macedonia, hitting those churches that he hit in his first missionary journey and went back and visited again in his second missionary journey. Verse 2 and then 3 tells us that he came to Greece and stayed three months. More accurately, he was actually in Corinth. It's where he spent those three months. There, the Jews plot against him. He's now on his way. He's going to float over to Syria and go south, probably visit folks in Antioch, go south to Jerusalem, and he will do what he has set his face to do. But the Jews plot against him in verse 2 force his hand, force him to not do what now he thought he was going to do. And so he doesn't go to Syria. He goes back up north again, the land route through Macedonia to come down walking south. Eventually he will take a boat. And in verse 16, we read he's decided now to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia. He was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, and maybe that was the only reason. He was in a hurry, but you think Ephesus was going to be his first uh, place he wanted to visit when he got back to Asia after only two years ago having been basically run out of town? Paul is wandering. Over two years of travel, maybe three by the time we get to the end of it all, two years of travel in ten verses, and Twice running from trouble. Twice running from trouble in these ten verses. First from Ephesus, then from the plot from Syria. As I said, I, I know the wandering that happens when you are in the wilderness. I know the wandering that comes from disobedience. I've shared my testimony in here a couple of times about our seven years of wilderness wandering from 2004 to 2011. And uh, Lacey talked about journaling for the D-groups. 
If you're going, oh, journaling, you mean I have to write every day? I am right there with you. I'm not a journaler. I have four journals, maybe five journals, in my office right now, and each of them have two to five pages filled in. The first two to five pages of my attempts, my aborted attempts, at journaling. I was reading through them the other day as I was beginning to take part in the e-group and and I, I got another journal. I'll just use these others, though. I'll skip those first couple of pages. There'll be a nice little bit of history. I was reading through them, and I found the journal from 2004. I believe the first entry was February. Uh, my grandmother had died in August before that. My grandfather, her husband, was not doing well. Uh, I, I had some prayer requests in there for, for him, prayer for him. He would end up dying, I think, just a couple of weeks after, uh, after I put that in there. And we had just moved to a church in Vider after being six months at a church in Galveston and leaving a hostile situation because back in uh, 2003, I, I said started in 2004, it actually started in 2003. Back in July of 2003, we had made the decision to go to a church that would be big old air quotes, easy, and avoid the church that we thought would be big old air quotes, hard, and we chose a church in Galveston. Six months later, we left, and we went to a church in Vider, and we were there. You guessed it, six months. But in February, I'm writing in this journal, thank you, Lord, I wish I'd brought it with me so I could quote how, how much of an idiot I sounded like. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this church. Your timing was perfect. It was exactly what we needed. That was in February, I think around February 16th. Sometime around March 20th, I think I did one more. This is how good I am at journaling. I think I did one more entry. My next entry was around March 20th. Oh, God, what are we doing here? We thought this was an answer to prayer. Why is it like this? June... 2004, I wish he would go on and fire me so at least I would get severance pay. That six months, five months, four months, that was the progression. I know about wandering, and I know about not knowing you're wandering when you're wandering. I was like, what's wrong? We were disobedient. We were not where we were supposed to be. Now, we look at this, and, and you could even look back, and at the time, this is why I, you know, we didn't realize we were in the wilderness when it was happening. We, we, traveling isn't new. I mean, we could go back and look at this travel log of verses 1 through 3 and verse 16. And, you know, traveling isn't new for Paul, for any missionary. It's happened over and over and over for thousands of years, a couple thousand, of year, couple thousand years, and it will continue to happen. Trouble isn't new. We were guaranteed, we were promised trouble, but there were two times Paul wandered through uh, a particular area visiting previous churches, and both times he was out of God's will. The Mas before the Macedonian call, when he couldn't go to Bithynia to the left, and he couldn't go to uh, the northwestern area of, uh, of uh, northeastern rather, area of 
Asia. He had to follow, he couldn't go back, and, and God finally got his attention. He'd spent months visiting churches and encouraging, and God finally got his attention through the Macedonian call and said, come over to Macedonia. So he, he, he there's, while traveling's not new and trouble's not new, we've seen this before with Paul. And what's going on right now in verses 1 through 3, this two years of traveling with very little commentary, is the exact opposite of Ephesus. The two years he spent in Ephesus that showed his power, or rather the Holy Spirit's power through him, more than any other time in his ministry. It's the opposite of the first missionary journey. It's the opposite of the second missionary journey when he finally responded to the Macedonian call and went over to uh, Greece and those areas. Because. Because point number two Missions was traded for ministry. Paul has traded stability for wandering. We don't worship stability. We don't look for stability. Stability is not our goal. But he had a ministry that God was blessing. And he left it by his own devices. At least left it to go do something he wasn't called to do. And in doing that, in leaving the stability of God's will... You understand, right, that if we are on in God's will, will, we are stable regardless of the instability of the world around us. We are stable. The world may not be. He leaves the stability of God's will to wander, and he does this because he has traded missions for ministry. Verse 2 says he offered them ministry, uh, many words of encouragement. Y'all, that is a good thing. Ministry isn't bad. Ministry is good. Ministry is always good, I would say. These were churches he started that he was visiting in Macedonia. These were uh, mostly that he started. Not all of them, but mostly they're churches he started. These are people that he loved, that he had very likely, many of them, brought to the Lord personally. People that he had written letters to, communicated with, probably more than we even have recorded. It says he offered many words of encouragement. Encouragement isn't bad. Encouragement is good. And my screen just disappeared. There it is. Okay. Ministry, uh, encouragement isn't bad. It's good. We need encouragers. Facebook just reminded me that I, uh, uh, to celebrate a friendship that uh, a 10-year friendiversary, as uh, Facebook calls it, with a man that was one of the best encouragers I know. Some of you have met him. Timbo Fowler, a church planter in Texas. I marvel at his Barnabas-like character because I don't have it. I wish I were like him. I wish I was an encourager like him. That's a spiritual gift that I do not have. We need encouragers in our lives. These churches needed to be encouraged by someone. But maybe not Paul. At least not Paul personally. Paul had people to send. He does it throughout the letters. 
You see him. I'm sending so-and-so to encourage you. And -and so-and-so is here encouraging the saints. And -and so-and-so is over there encouraging. He wrote letters. We have them. While he was in Ephesus, we turn back a chapter. While he was in Ephesus, he wrote three letters to the Corinthians. A letter he would call the previous letter in uh, 2 Corinthians. He wrote 1 Corinthians. And a letter he called the harsh letter. We don't have the previous letter and the harsh letter. We only have one and two. While in Macedonia, this two-year trip that gets one verse, he wrote 2 Corinthians. While in Corinth, or in Greece, as verse 2 and 3 say, he wrote Romans. Romans to a church he'd never been to yet. These are all wonderful, necessary, obviously inspired works, but they could have been written while he was on mission and not on ministry. See, ministry wasn't Paul's calling. I said this a couple of weeks ago. Ministry was not his great. Ministry was his good, but not his great. See, ministry and encouragement, they aren't great if you're called to reach the lost Gentiles of the world. Paul's calling, we covered that a few weeks ago, Paul's calling was to reach the Gentiles with the gospel. They would need encouragement, he would stay on a couple of years, he would build, uh, lift up Uh, pastors in in the churches. He would encourage them from a distance. But then he was supposed to go on and reach more Gentiles, and he is not. When we see no power working in Paul, and in this first six verses we don't, he's outside of God's will. When he's wandering around, visiting places he's already been to, some of them now twice, it's kind of like a fallback. Well, I don't know what to do right now. I'll go to these places I've already been a second time. So, missions was traded for ministry. Stability was traded for wandering. Number three, outreach was traded for an offering. Paul was focused on money rather than the mission. Michael, where are you getting that? It does not say that anywhere in this passage. You know, you are exactly right. We get a hint in verse 4. Why does his party suddenly explode with Sopater and uh, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius and Timothy? Timothy's always been around. Tychicus and Trophimus. We know Luke is there. But it's usually just been two or three people. But suddenly he's got this huge group of people. Well, these are representatives from churches that were started on his second and third missionary journeys. We could go back and we can pinpoint many of the places that are mentioned. A couple of places are from the general area. Luke doesn't mention an offering or a collection until much later in Acts. So why are you talking about money, Michael? Because of Paul's letters. Paul talked about money when he was writing to these churches, when he was writing while visiting these churches to other churches, he mentions a couple of times the collection. Corinthians, I want to get the collection from you. In Romans, I have the collection and I will be taking it to Jerusalem before I come to visit you. 
It was a major focus of his, this offering, this collection for the church in Jerusalem, was a major focus of him at this time. Luke says nothing about it. It is clearly not important to Luke and or the Holy Spirit. It's merely, this is where he went. Now, is a collection to help churches good? Nod. This means yes. Yes, a collection to help churches is good. It's, it's really good. But Paul didn't need to collect it. Paul didn't need to deliver it. Remember, one of weeks ago, months ago now maybe, I, I, I contend that Paul's thorn in the flesh is not a person necessarily that Jesus sent, uh, that the, uh, the Holy, uh, rather, the devil sent. Uh, Jesus doesn't spend, uh, send thorns in the flesh. The devil does. It's a messenger of Satan. I don't think it's a person, though, trust me, the devil sends people to be thorns in the flesh. I think in Paul's case, it's not a person. It's not a physical handicap. I think Paul knew his thorn in the flesh, his messenger from Satan, was his own pride. And we see this regularly. When in 22, I believe, maybe 21, Paul tells us, or Luke rather, tells us finally of the vision that Paul had when he was in the temple just after his conversion in the temple in Jerusalem, and he argues with God about how effective his ministry would be in Jerusalem. They know my testimony, it'll be great. And God says, I'm calling you to the Gentiles, boy, go. He argues with God. So it appears to me pride is an issue, and I wonder if that's not what this was. Boy, won't the church in Jerusalem be impressed when I show up with all these people and all this money for the collection. I don't know, I'm, I'm reading a little bit in there, but I think it's, a, it's not a stretch anyway. But regardless, the missionary's time and effort is wasted on something that didn't require his presence. He's trusted over and over people with the offering. He, he writes this in the letters. Timothy's bringing it, or Titus is bringing it, and they're doing this. And some, He does not have to do this, but yet he does. He's traded outreach for an offering. Money was his focus when it should have been lost people. Number four, power was traded for passivity. And this is where I'm not going to disagree with Lacey. I'm just going to present an alternate interpretation of this passage about Eutychus. What she said is absolutely right. That is a very good interpretation from the context. And that might be exactly what it means. But it's possible. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not fussing or anything. It's possible that there's a different angle to this. Notice what's happening. Is it the first day of the week? We, Luke's there, assembled. This is looking like a very typical church service for them. First day of the week, breaking bread. This is what church is for the new church Christians. 
we see Paul preaching to the choir. Now, the choir needs to be encouraged. The choir needs to be preached to. But that's why Paul appointed pastors and elders and leaders in every place he went. So that he could do what? Go to the mission field and reach Gentiles. He's preaching to the choir. They're in this third story window. Many lamps in the room. Why would Luke tell us that? Because Luke's a doctor. And there are a couple of things working, three things working here to cause this issue with Eutychus. One, long sermon. Until midnight. And then he goes for another six hours. Amen. But at midnight, he falls out. Many lamps. It was probably warm, and there wasn't a lot of oxygen. The dude just passed out. He went to sleep. I mean, there were a lot of factors, but he passed out. And, and if interpreters are correct that verse 10, Paul bent over, went down, bent over him, and embraced him, if verse 10 is a miracle, it's the last one Paul will perform until the shipwreck on the way to Rome in chapter 27. Not another miracle. And now, according to the record Luke gives us, it's actually been two years, maybe, since his last miracle. So we're going to go four or five years, maybe, three years, who knows, with one miracle, Paul? Power was traded for passivity. Now, I'll, I'll present one opposing view here that possibly this was not a miracle at all in the case of Eutychus. I, I'm not going to uh, hammer this. I'm not going to say, absolutely, if you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. I'm, it's just a possible interpretation. The, the miracle might actually have been that he survived falling from the third-story window. He was probably a 12, 13, 14-year-old kid, still flexible. That's the word that's used, not flexible, kid. Um, Could have been thought dead. So kind of like Paul was in chapter 14 verses 19 through and uh, 19 and 20 when they were in Lystra. It says some Jews came out uh, came from uh, Antioch and Iconium and when they won over the crowds they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. And after disciples gathered around him, he got up and went into town. So we, we have some precedent for this, that though that passage is clearer, they thought he was dead. It doesn't say they thought he was dead. Uh, here it says that uh, he was dead, or he was picked up dead. So it's possible that he could have been thought to have been dead. But the, the, the next issue with this miracle is that he doesn't say anything like what we have in any other resurrection miracle. There, there's no uh, 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 magic word, no, no incantation that does it, but every other miracle we have usually has some sort of formula. Get up and walk. Talitha kum, Jesus said. Little girl, get up. We have those sorts of things. Paul hugs him. And, and maybe it's just, maybe it's a great example of, of God using 
Paul in an incredible way. Uh, miracles were done in Ephesus differently, right? I mean, he uh, handkerchief go into people that uh, Paul had sweat on. Uh, but here he merely announces, don't be alarmed. Literal translation, his life's in him. It almost sounds like, oh my goodness. Oh, no, he's good. It's really what it sounds like. That's what the text leans toward. But look at the crowd. Look at how excited they get. Look at the joyous praises of the Lord. Look at the, the celebration that they have. Oh, wait, no, that's not in there, is it? As a matter of fact, the crowd is underwhelmed, according to Luke's recording here. And, and I, I, I love the idea that maybe they, are, it's, it's, it, they see the miracle, and what are you going to do after a miracle? You're going to go back to preaching about Jesus. And, and that is possibly the case. That is a very good way to look at it. But maybe it was ho-hum, and they just go back to eating and talking and listening. Folks, if I kick a keel over right here all of a sudden, please don't clap. If I keel over right here all of a sudden and Lacey comes up and says, he's dead. Ain't no life in him. And Christy, who's a heart specialist, comes up and says, yep. And then one of y'all comes up and says, no, he's not. Get up. Boom, and I pop up. Folks, we have a revival, all right? We're not leaving either, but they're going to hear about it outside these walls. We're going to celebrate, most of us, that I'm back to life. We're going to be excited about it. We're gonna, I'm going to preach a long time after that. And it's going to be amazing what God does in the life of this church because the preacher was dead and somebody brought him back to life suddenly. Do you see that in this text? Just go back to preaching. Go back to teaching. And, and, and this, Luke talks about a lot of miracles in the gospel and in Acts, and he doesn't give this the weight of a resurrection. So maybe, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm way off track here, and I'm fine with that if I am, but if I'm right, this is the weakest miracle ever in Scripture. Weak in response, certainly not weak in action. So what do we have here in, in Troas with Eutychus? There's no crusade that brings in a harvest. He's preaching to the choir. What has Paul regularly done? Preached to the lost and had a harvest. Even in Athens where the harvest was small, he still went after the harvest. We don't have that here. There's no marveling at a miracle here. There's, hey, they were comforted. But even that comforted kind of feels like, whew, that was a close one. Can you believe he fell three stories and didn't die? Man, all right, what's for supper? Where are the mighty works of the earlier missions? Where in this passage, verses 1 through now 12, is the power of God working through the hands, the words, and even the sweat of Paul? I think Tony Evans' words pastor in Dallas that I mentioned at the beginning. Ring true again. If you're living outside of God's purpose, you're living outside of God's power. 
these four points have a lesson for us. As a church, let's reverse those four points a little bit. As a church, let's not trade stability for wandering. Now, stability doesn't, biblical stability, as I said, doesn't look like worldly stability. Everything's good, everything's smooth, everything's fine, everything's running great. It might, but biblical stability is obedience. We can think and even look like we're going in the right direction and still be disobedient as a church. Everything can look great on the outside, but we aren't where we are supposed to be. If, let's turn that around a little bit, if we wander in uncertainty with no focus or direction, we are completely, or mostly, I'll say, not completely, ineffective. And this is where I, as the pastor, confess to you. This is where we've been for the past three years. Going on three and a half now. August 1st was my three year. For three years, we've been wandering. We've been, as a staff, trying to figure out what we needed to do. And we've been trying to coalesce the resources and coalesce the leadership. And there have been barrier after barrier after barrier to that. And a lot of those barriers are gone now. So we are beginning as a staff to narrow our focus to do the things that we need to do, what, that we have to do, that we must do in order to be obedient to God as a church. We're narrowing that focus, and we're going to tell you all about it the second Sunday in January and begin 2019, uh, 2020 rather, with that focus, where we're going, what we are going to do. But we're not going to wait until then because tonight D groups start. And D groups is a part of that narrowing discipleship and evangelism. But those are broad topics. How are we going to do that? D groups? Okay, I'll tell you. Fresh. That's all I'm going to tell you right now. That, that, that's, that, that's January. Shh. Leave me alone. Second. Let's not trade stability for wandering. Let's not trade missions for ministry. We can have ministry successes and still be disobedient. We can look at seats and envelopes, and we can look at all sorts of things and say, we're doing great, we're doing okay, we're doing good, and still be disobedient. Ministry oftentimes, not always, Ministry oftentimes uh, disguises personal preferences and self-serving activities. We have to have this ministry. Why? Because this group of people, whatever it is, expects these things. Is that reaching the lost and is that discipling them? And or is that discipling them? If not, that's a self-serving or a self-preserving activity. That's not a ministry. And even if it is a ministry, it might not be the ministry we're called to. One of the things we're having to do as a staff is figure out what things we say no to. We can't do everything. Where is God leading us? What is our focus? Then that is our focus. And some good ministry opportunities, good missions opportunities, are going to have to be left behind 
for a while, maybe just for a while, while we focus on the main thing, focus on obedience, focus on great. Let's not trade outreach for offerings. Folks, we can fund every cause and meet every financial goal and still be disobedient. We can be the best Lottie Moon giver, Annie Armstrong giver, Georgia Barnett giver, meet our budget every year, and still not be doing what God told us to do. We can be broke as all get out and be right where God needs us to be and be being obedient. If we put finances in a place of greater importance than reaching the lost, reaching people, we have failed. We worship and are obedient to God, not a budget. And so we do what we are called to do. We don't trade outreach for offerings. And lastly, let's not trade power for passivity. We can have all the trappings of churchiness. We can look exactly like we're supposed to look on the outside, look exactly like we're supposed to look on the inside, and still be disobedient. We can look good to those outside and be languishing in a void created by the lack of Holy Spirit power here on the inside. We can trade power for passivity. Let's be honest. Passivity is easy. God's power is scary. Not just hard, it is frightening. Disobedience will not necessarily keep us from doing good. Don't think that if we are disobedient, if we have been disobedient, or Michael's saying we've never done anything good, that's not what I'm saying. I believe we've done good in the last three years. I believe we've done good in the last 16 years. I believe we've done good throughout our history as a church. And I'm not looking past about 15 or 16 years ago, generally. But if we have been disobedient at any point in that time, we have only done good and not great. And disobedience will always keep us from that which is great and can only be accomplished through the power of God. There is so much good we can do. But let's not focus on what we think is good and miss what God has for us that is great. The great you're missing today might be Salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That may be your great. You think you're good as a church member, as a giver, as uh, just a good person. I'm not, a, I'm not really awful or bad or whatever. I, you, know, you think you're good, but you are missing great in salvation. See, God created great. God's design was great. God's design was perfect. But sin, our sin, ruins God's design. And our sin always leads to brokenness. Leads to a broken heart, a broken soul, a broken spirit, a broken life. And our ways of fixing that brokenness never work. It is the gospel that heals brokenness. The gospel that says Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel. We must repent and believe that gospel. We must confess our sins, confess our sinfulness, 
and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. I am a wretch and only he can save me. I am lost and only he can find me. I am hell bound, but only he can give me an eternity with Christ. That is the gospel. And then as we, as a community of believers, of saved saints, recover and pursue God's design, we recover it and pursue it in obedience to God as he leads us and we see incredible Holy Spirit power works in the life of our church. And we see the lost come to Christ. Pray with me. Thank you, Jesus, for your salvation. Thank you, God, for sending your Son. Thank you for your word that speaks, living and cuts. Oh, how it cuts. But it exposes. It exposes where we lack. It exposes where we excel. It shows us what we need to do and what we're already doing that's right. Lord, I pray that you would speak to hearts this morning, believer and unbeliever alike, church member and non-member alike, that we would all be obedient. And maybe today the obedience is to trust Jesus as Savior. I pray that you would work on that heart that is lost, that's here this morning listening or watching online, either this morning or sometime later on, and wants to respond to that gospel message. I pray that they would repent, believe in Jesus Christ, trust him for their salvation, and follow him. Give their lives to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.